This is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Amen. Father, we do re rejoice, and we love your word, and for the joy that it reminds us is at our disposal every time we need it. You are at our disposal every time we need you. And yet, Father, we confess that too often we lean on our own understanding and we think we're strong enough without you. Forgive us for being so juvenile and infantile. Grow us up into a deeper dependence upon you and a deeper joy that comes from being dependent upon you. Oh, Lord, let your face shine upon us now and be gracious to us and fill us with the joy of the Lord, we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We have a long way to go this morning and a short time to get there. And so turn with me to Psalm chapter 4. Sooner or later, all of us run into conflict with other people. All of us have been hurt by other people, and we have hurt people. It may be some betrayal by someone, or maybe by personal attack or slander, or maybe even physical harm. It may have occurred in the office. It may have occurred in your marriage. It may have been in your church, God forbid. And when you read the Psalms, it's like David was perpetually under fire from other people. There were men who were constantly on David's heels. They were attempting to tear him down. They were attempting to ruin his reputation, impeach his character, remove him from the throne, throw him out of town. And there were even some who were determined, if they could, to kill him. Truth be told, David didn't always respond well to circumstances like this, and that comforts me because I don't always respond well. But in the psalm before us this morning, Psalm 4, David offers us a model for how to respond to people who cause us pain. I think we can agree that the Lord never leaves us to fend for ourselves in those times when people cause us pain, when we are justly, unjustly treated or oppressed. But if we're not careful to lean on God's wisdom and trust in his ways when we're being treated unjustly, we run the risk of making matters worse, and more importantly, we run the risk of dishonoring the Lord. So how should we respond when people cause us pain? David counsels us with four things that he did in a particular instance of being personally mistreated. First, he called upon the Lord in his distress. Second, he invites his enemies to repent. Third, he delights in the joy of the Lord. And really, third and fourth, if I had one more day of study before we had to print this in the bulletin, I would have made it three points instead of four. But we'll tack on this last one. Next, he delights and the joy of the Lord. And finally, he trades his anxiety for peace. It's the peace of sleep once again, like last week. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you this morning to turn to Psalm chapter 4. Let's stand together in honor of God's word. 
and follow along with me as I read. Uh, there is a pew Bible. If you need one, perhaps someone next to you could find Psalm 4 if you don't know where it is. And by the way, if you're that person, I'm so glad you're here, so glad you're here. And the people around you are so glad that you're here and hope they make you feel at home. And if they don't, if they ignore you, I want you to come and tell me. I want names. I want, do a selfie with them and then, never mind. Uh, Psalm 4, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know this, that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, our Lord, make me dwell in safety. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. I want to make an observation before we dive into this text. It's an observation that really helped me this week to understand the flow of this text. And the observation is this. Psalm 4 is not a letter. And I'm saying that I had to say that to myself this week. I'm done with 2 Timothy. That was a letter. This is not a letter. It's a song. Songs in David's day, just as in ours, are written differently than letters and narratives or legal documents or anything else. Often a song will lack a logical progression of thought because the author intends to communicate a major theme or a common theme throughout some idea in a creative and thoughtful manner that can be sung. This was to be sung by the congregation in Israel. And this will be important for us as we work through the structure of this song. Let me just give you a taste of it. For example, David begins in verse 1 with something he wants to say to God. And then, rather abruptly, the lyrics of the song switch over to verse 2 to something David wants to say to his enemies. And it's not very clear what the connection is between the two. You have to look at the psalm as a whole. And, and then David, so David wants to say something to his enemies. And then in verse 6, he switches again to a couple of things that he wants to say to God. Apparently, David wanted God's people to learn something about how to respond to being mistreated. It's clearly not the intention of his at this point to teach us everything that there is to know from God's word about how to respond to people who mistreat you. There are other places. Romans 12, for example, is one of those places. The Gospels, uh, the, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, there are many places in the Word of God that, uh, that addresses this. David is not trying to be exhaustive. He's simply talking about a particular occasion in his life and what he did, and I think we can learn from it, which is why it's in the Scriptures. 
So how does God want us to respond to mistreatment? Um, he wants to offer us rich counsel, especially to those who are currently suffering at the hands and mouths of others. And I think that what David wants us to learn is that when we are mistreated by others, the Lord enables us to respond in a manner that glorifies him and leads us into peace, the fruit of which is sleep. And I'm not going to overly emphasize the sleep aspect of this, but it's the fruit of peace. So let's spend a few minutes together considering David's example here. First, when David found himself being mistreated on this particular occasion, he responded by, we talked about this last week, taking refuge in God. He took refuge in God. When we are in a similar situation, here's the implication. The text implies that we too should call upon the Lord in our distress. Call upon the Lord in your distress. If you were to come to me and say, what should I do? I'm being mistreated. It really hurts bad. And I would say, number one, uh, I hope I'm not the first resort. The first thing you should have done is called upon the Lord in your distress. Look at verse 1. Psalm 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. This is what it looks like. This is what it sounds like to take refuge in God. So, you know, so many times you don't even know what to ask for. You just run to him. You just call him to come to you. Notice with me that he really isn't asking for anything in, in specific. He, he simply wants God to be gracious to him in his current distress, whatever that grace may mean. He longs for, that this is the one, one clue of what he, he's asking for is the word relief in verse 1. He longs for some kind of relief, perhaps relief from the anxiety of the situation. I take it that the enemies are not upon him, they're not currently doing him harm physically, but it's stressful. It makes him anxious or provokes anxiety. And this only comes, this kind of relief only comes in the presence of the Father. In his presence, anxiety fades. In his presence, the enemy flees. In his presence, there is joy unspeakable and full of glory. No matter what your circumstances. And this is what we see in this psalm, and we'll see it more when we get to the end. Now, this verse, verse 1, reminds me of the truth of what we already know. Namely, that hardship and pain will either drive us, listen carefully, hardship, your conflict with other people, or whatever the pain is, it will either drive you to God or it will drive you away from God. And whether it drives you to God or away from God in, depends entirely on how you respond to that trial. It's not the circumstance that dictates. This is not determinism. You do not have to go down that road that leads you to death. Rather, you can, you can choose 
to have this trial calls you to run to God and to find in him something you didn't have before the trial happened. Something so much better. You will be so thankful for the trial because of what God revealed himself to be for you in the midst of it. David didn't enjoy suffering any more than you you and I do. He wanted relief, same as you. The question is, to what do you turn for relief? Some turn to entertainment, others turn to sex. Many turn to video games or friends or shopping. Some of us have had the privilege of knowing and trying to help a few who have turned to pills or alcohol or worse. To what or to whom do you turn when you long for relief? And are you even sensitive to the fact that your heart is searching for something to relieve itself? Can I just tell you something about your heart that may be contrary to what you've been taught? The world teaches us that our heart is passive. It's just responding to what's, what's happening to it. That's not the way the Bible portrays the heart, the inner person. It's always looking, always searching, always scanning for something to satisfy it. When you sense that dissatisfaction, to what do you turn? Where do you find relief? David turned to Yahweh, the almighty covenant-keeping God. And God invites him and us to do so 10,000 times in his word and in different ways. So it seems clear to me that this is not the first time David has sought refuge like this in God. There's, for instance, let me just observe with you that there is no hesitancy in his prayer. There's no choppiness. There's, there's no, yeah, you know, am I going to bother him? Is this a good time? No, 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 no. His approach is straightforward and it's bold. In fact, the word answer me Listen to this. The word answer me is in the imperative, which means it's a command. God, answer me. Isn't that interesting? David is giving God a command. Now, obviously and clearly, David doesn't believe for a moment that he has authority to command God, but he is so confident in God's promise to hear him that he cries out with boldness. He doesn't have to ask God if he's too busy. All he has to do is call for help. And he calls with boldness, Oh God, you who have promised never to leave me, you who have promised never to to neglect my prayers, be gracious to me now. Or the King James says, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And you detect in David's humble posture before God here, whether the appropriate translation is grace or mercy, it's clear that David understands that he doesn't deserve what he's asking for. Think of his sin with Bathsheba, which I think happened before this. Think of what he did after that sin. Think of all the people who were harmed by that. And yet here's David. He's been fully and completely forgiven. Still suffering some consequences, but in terms of his relationship with God, he's been purified. He's been forgiven. It's not that God forgot his sins or he forgets your sin. He doesn't forget your sin. He does something better. He chooses not to remember them against you. 
This is David's posture. He comes before the Lord with humility, knowing that he's asking for something he doesn't deserve, but confident that he will receive it. This is what the gospel teaches us, is it not? You know, around here, among the pastors of this church, we try to be really careful not to insert Jesus or the gospel where he doesn't belong, where, where the text isn't making it out to be like that. But it's here. It's here. This is what the gospel teaches us. Apart from his grace, apart from his mercy, we would have no peace with God. And we would be his enemy, and we would be the just objects of his wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Because of that grace, we now live in relation. We, we sinners who have been transformed by his grace, we now live in relationship with God. We are now welcome. We now have access to him. We now have the privilege of running to our daddy. Your daddy. And the Holy Spirit teaches us to cry out, Abba, Dada. We are his dependent children. He loves it when we come to him with our needs. So David prays, O oh God, have compassion. Show pity toward me in my trouble. Be my refuge. Grant me relief from my anxiety. And later in his life, he would write Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. The Lord is near to all who call on him. It's just another way of saying he is a shield, which is just another way of saying he is our refuge. David is in need. There are men of rank. In fact, if you have the ESV, there's probably a study note at the bottom of your page that says these are men of rank. These are high-ranking men in Israel who are treating him unjustly. By way of contrast, observe the name by which David addresses God in verse 1. He calls him, O God of my righteousness. What they're doing is unrighteous. But the God in whom I seek refuge is the God of righteousness. It's interesting here. There's kind of an, a way that the Hebrews used to phrase things. Uh, for example, back in Psalm 3, just one page back, where the ark, he's talking about where the ark resides, and it says literally in the Hebrew, the hill, it's where the ark resides. It resides in the hill of my holiness. And here, David is using that same kind of language. Um, he, he means, hill of my holiness means holy hill, right? Where does God live? On the holy hill, where the ark is, where the tabernacle is. Here, it is not hill of my holiness, but God of my righteousness. In other words, my righteous God. My righteous God. David is addressing the righteous God who knows that he is innocent in the matter. That's why David is confident. He doesn't, he's still asking for mercy. He understands he never will deserve God's mercy. If you deserve it, it's, it's a wage. It's not a grace. 
But he also understands that since he has received it, he is entitled to it. The charge against him, whatever that charge may be, and we aren't told what it is, he's asking God to come to his aid and prove what is true, that he is innocent in the matter. I had a couple of friends who used to be a part of this church. They had a really rough background. They won't mind. If they're listening right now, they're going to laugh when I tell this story. Um, and they had a really rough life in the past. And they wanted to do something for the church. And they did a lot of things, wonderful things for the church. And one day, they were right outside this wall. They were replacing a broken window. He was cutting some trees and ended up breaking the window. A couple of days later, he came back with a pane of window uh, glass. And he was fixing the window and as they were fixing the window, two police cars came around this way. And they jumped out with their guns and told them to get on the ground. And they were telling me this later, because I drove up right after this happened, just by God's providence. And uh, they were both smiling. And uh, I said, how are you guys doing? And they started telling me this story. And I said, they, the police got out with guns? Yeah. And they told you to get on the ground? What did you do? He said, we got on the ground. <laughs> and uh, as I said, they've had, you know, Hard time in the past, made some mistakes along the way. And, uh, and so the wife starts talking to the husband, and he says, honey, you know the drill. Don't talk unless we're spoken to. And she says, oh, yeah, that's right. And, uh, and then he's trying to explain, I go to this church. And they said, no, you don't. Where's your car? He said, well, I don't have a car. I have a motorcycle, and it's around the corner. No, it's not. It's, we checked. Well, go check again. It's over. Look, I'm wearing a Calvary Bible Church T-shirt. And they got him in cuffs, right? And they're standing there, and one of the police officers go over, goes over there, and they find his motorcycle. And, you know, the key is in the lock. And he comes over, and he's like, okay, I guess, I guess you're telling the truth. And they, they let him go. And I said, they apologize? No, no. And, uh, and the whole time, the wife's not saying anything to me. And she's on her knees on the grass right here. And my window's down, and I'm talking. And I said, sister, what do you think about all this? And she smiles with this great big smile. I'll never forget this. And she said, Pastor, all I can say is, it sure is nice to be innocent for a change. <laughs> it was wonderful for her. They were so, this, this is what it feels like to be innocent. They knew God's mercy on them. And they loved God's mercy on them. Those, listen, I'll tell you one thing about that couple. Uh, Jesus was right. Those who have been forgiven much love much. And their love for Jesus is so evident. This is a good model for us, beloved, when we face the mistreatment of others. We should do as David did. You should call upon the Lord in your distress. Second, we should... Now, this is, this is a little precarious because this is a song... But here's what David is doing, and I didn't know how to word this, because not, you're not all going to write songs that we're going to sing in church. And so I, I phrased it this way, invite your enemies to repent. In, let's invite our enemies to repent. Now remember, as I said, what we're reading here is lyrics of a song, so we should expect the unexpected, and what we find next is truly unexpected. In this song, David begins speaking to those who are the source of his anxiety and distress, in fact, it appears to me that David is being downright evangelistic in his address. He's not vilifying his enemies. He's not sending them, you know, 
condemnation over Facebook or Twitter. He's, he's not calling down God's curse upon them. He's not gathering a team of friends to rise up against them. No, this is not an imprecatory psalm. You know, David wrote some of them. Do I not hate those who hate you? God, bring down fire like John and James and John said. No, in this song, David is showing David is showing us how to love our enemies. And how does David love his enemies? He does the most loving thing that anyone can do for his enemies. He calls them to repent of their sin and put their trust in God. Look at verses 2 through 5. Oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own heart on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Uh, this is a really wonderful and, for me, unexpected progression of thought. Um, if you're a musician and our elders were to come to you and say, listen, uh, you're, a, you're a gifted composer. I know we have at least one composer in our congregation. And it, let's say I were to go to him after the service and say, listen, I, I want you to write a song that invites our enemies to repent of their sins and turn to God. A song that we will sing in church. Oh, you wicked, repent of your sins and come to God, right? I mean, I mean, obviously I'm not a composer. Uh, what would you say in that song? What would you say in that song? And remember, the Old Testament congregation... Uh, the Old Testament congregation you're a part of is, is going to sing this next Sabbath or, or the first Sabbath after it's complete. This, I think, is what David is doing. I mean, this is what the Psalms are. They're songs to be sung in the assembly. The second stanza of this song is a call to repentance and faith. We've already looked at the first stanza. The first stanza is, answer me when I call. And now starting with verse 2 through verse 5, I think it's the second stanza, and I'll tell you why here in a minute. Notice that David begins with a question. How long shall my honor be turned to shame? Now, we know that David is suffering injustice at the hands of prominent men in Israel. And now we get a glimpse of what kind of harm they are doing to him. They're slandering him. He is the king. He holds the highest rank in Israel. By his appointed office, he carries a magisterial glory. He's the king. But they're trying their best to turn his glory into shame. Who knows what they're doing? Are they bringing up his past sins? Are they once again calling him a man of bloodshed? And so David asks them, how long? Ever felt like that? Come on, you guys, when are you going to give it up? How long will you keep smearing my name and my reputation? How long will you reject God's appointed king? And this is so critical here. 
This is God's appointed king. They are fighting against or trying to tear down the one that God has appointed, the anointed one, the one who knows that he is the precursor to the Messiah. There's no doubt in David's mind that he should be king. And there should have been no doubt in anyone else's mind that he should be king. As I see it, the first indication, this is the first indication that these men are unbelievers. They're unbelievers. And then David asks, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Now this statement seems vague and intangible, but I think it is the statement that reveals most explicitly that these are people who are outside the covenant, at least in covenant relationship with God. Consider a couple of possibilities. First, David may be exposing the fact that his enemies are idolaters. And my first clue to that this week as I was studying was to realize that the NIV, the New International Version um, of this passage of the Bible, it translates this verse as follows. How long will you love delusion and seek false gods? And I thought, huh, why did they translate it like that? Why false gods? And I also discovered when I opened up my ESV, which is what I'm preaching of now, that if you look at the ESV study notes on this verse, it reads, empty things are vain idols. I, 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 I think he means in the Bible, when empty things are referred to, it often refers to idols. And, and he goes on, an idol is nothing, a vacuous entity that gives the one who trusts in it only vanity or emptiness in return. And then I began digging into the Old Testament and discovered that idols are often referred to, sure enough, as vain, empty, and useless. For example, Jeremiah 16 19 through 21, O oh Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things. Now you've got to be asking yourself, what is he referring to by lies? And what is he referring to when he says they have inherited worthless things? You just have to keep reading worthless things in which there is no profit. And then he says, can a man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Clearly, these lies and this worthlessness are in relation to idolatry, to the idols themselves. So it may be that these men were idolaters, and there were plenty of them in Israel. Israel kept falling back into that same sin. Prominent men were leading them into idolatry. All you got to do is read the Old Testament. I mean, idolatry is all over the place until the Babylonian captivity. But someone may say, well, I'm not convinced. Well, that's okay. You don't have to be convinced of that because there's another option here. And that is, if these men are not idolaters, then they are certainly lovers of the world. Matthew Henry, I think, is clearest on this. He says, those that love the world and seek the things that are beneath love vanity and seek lies. 
and those also and as those also do that please themselves with the delights of sense or, or sensuality and portion themselves with the wealth of this world for these will deceive them and so ruin them okay so think about this i mean look at the state of our nation right now what in the world is going on answer our culture is pursuing vanity and believing lies. They've rejected God. They've rejected his word. And so they pursue every, every vain thing, thinking that it will bring them the joy, the comfort, the satisfaction that they will never get from those things, not in a lasting way. In either case, whether they are idolaters or simply lovers of the world, I have concluded that they are unbelievers. And it is at this point that David begins doing something remarkable. Instead of retaliating against his enemies, he counsels them on what they should do. In fact, he offers them five imperatives, five consecutive imperatives that strike us as somewhat of an Old, Te an Old Testament presentation of the gospel. Listen carefully to this. First, first imperative, verse 3, is know, K-N-O-W, know. David says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. These were religious people, no doubt, but they were not God's people. To set apart means to be distinct. Beloved, this is one of many Old Testament allusions to God's electing grace. It reminds me of the time that Jesus was being hounded by the Pharisees, and he says to them in John 6, 24, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I mean, it sounds very much like, um, Know that the Lord has set apart for himself the godly. God has called them to himself. It is God who has done this. And, and by implication, uh, what he implies here is, you are not them. You, my enemies, are outside of God's grace and his mercy. The men who oppose David may say what they will, but David warns them that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The ungodly, it's, it's implied, are excluded. It's almost as if he's saying, men, I know you're attacking me, and you may catch up to me, and it may be God's will for you to kill me, but you are in danger. You are in danger. You're in danger of being lost forever. The meaning seems plain, doesn't it? David is saying, be warned, your actions are clearly contrary to God. They are ungodly. You are in danger of being rejected by God because of your rebellion against him. Oh, my friends, this is a timely message for our generation. There are many people in churches today who consider themselves in right standing with God, and yet when you get to know them, there's, there's all kinds of rebellion 
and immorality and justification of sin in their lives, open sin, be warned. It is the godly whom the Lord has set aside for himself. And when the godly pray, God answers. And part of the implication is, you can pray all you want. God's going to be no help to you. God is against you. God opposes the proud. Be warned. Now that doesn't mean that God saves those who make themselves godly. Rather, it means that those whom God has set aside for himself are marked by the fruit of godliness, the spirit-wrought fruit of godliness. If the Holy Spirit, I've said this a thousand times, maybe not 10,000 times, but a thousand times uh, since I've been preaching in this church, it's been a long time, um, that when the Holy Spirit comes into the life of a sinful man, that sinful man must change. He will change. He will begin taking on the characteristics of the one who dwells within him, namely, the Holy Spirit. He will begin to become holy. And saving grace is the root of our salvation. Godliness is the fruit, and we need to keep the order right. We don't clean ourselves up and hope that God will accept us. Someone once said, you got to get this right. Jesus catches his fish before he cleans them. Okay, that wasn't very good, but... <laughs> but look, he is going to clean you. He is going to sanctify you. But first, he must indwell you. So the first imperative is to know. Know, know that God sets apart the godly for himself. And part of the privilege of being consecrated by God or set apart by God is that, verse 3, he hears when I call to him. He doesn't listen to the prayers of the rebellious, the wicked, but he hears when the frailest, youngest, youngest child calls upon him from a pure heart. On the other hand, this verse is a great encouragement to we who believe for if God is fulfilling his covenant with David, he will surely fulfill his covenant with us and bring us into the eternal life that he has promised. The second imperative is, and you're not going to see this in your text, so I'll have to explain it. The second imperative is tremble. Your Bible probably says something quite different. Be angry. Be angry. Now please... I want to be sensitive to this. Trust your English Bibles. But from time to time, we get a little clarity by digging into the language and context and all of those things. Um, in fact, uh, the, the NAS actually translates it this way, not be angry, but tremble. Um, here's what it says. Be angry and do not sin, verse 4. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. Tremble. It means to be moved, to be disquieted, to be thrown into commotion. When one gets a clear vision of the holy, 
of the Almighty God, when God by his grace causes you, opens your eyes to who you are and your unrighteous standing before God and what that means, the only natural response is to tremble, to quake. When one gets a clear vision of this God, I mean, it's like Isaiah. Isaiah walks into the temple and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, huh. Um, funny seeing you here. Oh, no, 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 no. He walks in and he sees Jesus sitting on the throne, and smoke filling the temple, and the creatures crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah doesn't even join them in singing. He falls on his face and he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the holy. He's scared. He's fearful. Listen, beloved, neither in, verse, in this verse nor in Ephesians 4.26 is God encouraging people to be angry. Uh, righteous or otherwise. Rather, he calls us to offer a right response to our sin. And if that sin happens to be anger, then respond to it quickly. In fact, he calls people very carefully to humble themselves and own their sin and to deal with their sin. This is what David is doing here. In the case of the Ephesians text, be angry and, and, and do not sin. And Paul is calling people to deal with their sinful anger in a timely manner. David is telling his enemies to acknowledge and deal with their sin, to own it before God. And that brings us to the third imperative. The third imperative is ponder. Ponder. Now listen, anybody can say, well, I'm a sinner. I mean, everybody knows they're a sinner. Everybody knows they're a sinner. They just don't know what it means. They don't, they don't know the implications of that. They don't know how sinful they actually are because they can think of five people who are more sinful than they are or 25 people or 1,000 people. And their standard of righteousness is those people. And that's not who you should be comparing yourself against. You know, I, I love it when our kids were growing up and they would, you know, especially our twins, they were, um, uh, they were different heights, and uh, they still are. And, but they would, they, when they got close, they started getting back to back. Okay, how, how are we doing on, on height, right? Oh, well, you know, he's taller, than, or she's taller than he is, and, and vice versa, right? I mean, what are you comparing against? That's what we do. We, we compare ourselves against a standard that is man-made. We put our backs up against other people, and we say, ha! I'm taller than you are. My righteousness is higher than your righteousness. I mean, look at that person. He's a mass murderer. I'm way better. Way better. God's going to have something to say to him that's bad, 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 bad. Me? I'm just going to slip right on in. My good's going to outweigh my bad. Oh, no, 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 no. You misunderstand the standard. Try this. 
Stand back to back with God and see how you measure. Compare your holiness with his holiness. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, listen carefully, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You say, well, how high is, how, how righteous is that? In the very last verse of the same chapter, Matthew chapter 6, he says, therefore, you must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know what that means? To get into the kingdom of God, you've got to be as good as God. And I have people all the time say to me, that's not fair. I didn't see fair in the text. Fair wasn't a part of this. Justice is the issue. Listen, you will either get justice to your everlasting destruction or you will get mercy. Nobody gets injustice. Nobody gets injustice from God. David is telling his enemies, Acknowledge and deal with your sin, to own it before God. And that brings us to the third imperative. The third imperative is ponder. I guess that's where we already were. I lost my place. David says, ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. David seems to be inviting his enemies to think carefully and honestly about their standing before God. And in their cause is just... They should ask themselves, or is it merely the pursuit of power and self-aggrandizement? He even gives them practical advice about how to ponder and consider the condition of their own hearts. He says, in the evening, when you go to bed, and you're all by yourself, and you're laying in the dark, that's the perfect time. It's the perfect time. Perfect time for you to say, okay, I'm away from all my friends. I'm a, nobody's going to hear me. God, if, if you're there, can we just have a little conversation? I know my sin, and it terrifies me. And here I am in bed, and it causes me to tremble. What do I do? I mean, all my friends do what I do. They party, they, I don't know, whatever, you fill in the blanks. All kinds of things that Dishonor the Lord. Lord, it makes me tremble. What do, what do I do? That's appropriate introspection. And what's the answer to that question? Well, look at the fourth imperative. Offer. Offer. Offer right sacrifices. In the Old Testament, there were prescribed sin offerings which God designed to cover or atone for the person's sins. Instead of rebelling against God, David is saying, humble yourselves before him and offer the prescribed sacrifices for sin and do it with the right motives because sin and righteousness are always a matter of the heart. And you can do religious things all day long and still be under God's condemnation because even your obedience is not from the heart. You're thinking that your righteousness will give you an entry with God, make you right before God, or that your suffering will give you a pass for your sin, and neither are true. There were sacrifices for sins, and God called Israel, his people, 
to consider their guiltiness and to have it covered or washed away, handled by his grace. And so obedience may actually be the fruit of faith. In fact, if you have faith and it is real, then obedience will be the fruit. And so what do you do? You're trembling on your bed and you're thinking, nobody knows, nobody knows the sin that I have. All the things that go on in my mind. If God knows those things, I'm in serious trouble. If God knows the things that I've done before, any of my, before I knew any of my friends, I, mean, I, I would be the most loathsome creature to God. You're trembling on your bed, and, and what do you do? You obey. You run to the Father like the tax collector did at the temple, and you say, God, be propitiated toward me. That's what sacrifice was about, by the way. To be propitiated means to offer a gift, offer a sacrifice that God will receive and, and that's what the tax collector did at the temple. He wouldn't even lift his head to God. He wouldn't lift his face up toward God. He simply said, God, be propitiated. These offerings that are happening over here in the temple, the lamb that I just gave to be slaughtered, be propitiated toward me. And that brings us to the fifth imperative. The fifth imperative is put, namely, put your trust, your faith, your confidence in the Lord. This is the only way to be made right with God. It's the only way to, make, to be made right with God. He says, verse 5, offer sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. It's amazing as you study the Bible how often you find the gospel. We don't always appreciate seeing it in the Old Testament, but here it is in its most basic substance. How do we respond when people call us pain, cause us pain? Number one, we call upon the Lord in our distress. We run to him for refuge. Secondly, David says, invite or, or pray that your enemies will repent. And third, and this one's beautiful, third thing, start delighting in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Look at verses 6 and 7. And there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In, in this psalm, David is not really speaking to his enemy. He's singing what he believes God would have him say to his enemies if, they had, if he had the opportunity. And while his words probably had no immediate effect on his enemy, after all, the congregation is singing this, or David is writing it, it does seem that it had a profound effect upon him. So let me give you a comparison. I don't know how you guys you guys are affected by my preaching, but I'm affected by it. As I'm preaching to you, it's like, it's like the congregation singing 
this psalm should have an effect on me as I sing. It should have an effect on you as you listen and sing these things. It seemed to have an effect on David. He started out commanding God, Come, help me. Oh, Lord, answer me when I call, oh, God of my righteousness. And here toward the end, there's none of that. It's just joy. And David's done rehearsing the gospel. His own heart is lifted and revived. He's just saying to them what God has already said to him. Come to me, repent, take ownership of your sin, lay on your bed and ponder, put your, take, offer the right sacrifice and put your trust in God. And you've got to know David, I mean, he was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy. Anyone who can write Psalm 119 and do it as an acrostic at multiple levels and then do it in a way that the congregation, I mean, that's brilliance. I hardly even understand it. Well, I'm not real good with Hebrew, so I don't understand. It's amazing. He was a brilliant, brilliant guy. And when he was rehearsing the gospel, he understood the theology behind what he was writing. He's reminded about what a glorious gift it is to live in a reconciled, justified state in peace with God. And it occurs to him that there are many people who don't experience the superior goodness in this life. He says, verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us any good? I mean, isn't that what we hear all the time? I mean, isn't, even, isn't that the impulse of our society today? I mean, where's the good? I mean, there's got to be better. There's got to be better. Push the envelope a little more. Maybe it's there. Push the envelope a little more. Maybe it's there. Push it a little more. Maybe it's there. The problem is, God is the reality of the universe. And if you reject God, one of these days, you are going to have a head-on collision with reality. And it will be painful. And it may be the best thing that ever happened in your life. Because on that day, you will only be able to look to him. There are many who say, who will show us any good? I mean, where is real joy? Where is real satisfaction? Where is there real hope? I mean, our society today is rapidly becoming nihilistic or nihilistic. You know, nothing really matters. Remember that, I shouldn't mention that song because you'll be humming it. Nothing really matters. Nothing really matters. Really? No wonder that young man who wrote that killed himself. How do believers respond to this question? Who will show us any good? How do believers respond to that? To what do we point people to find goodness, satisfaction, meaning, and refuge in this life? I imagine David crying out his answer as a prayer to the Lord. Lift up the light of your face among us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Now, what's the whole grain and wine thing? Okay, so grain is, I mean, the, the, the fundamental staple of their food. They turn it into flour. You're going to make cake with it. You're going to make rolls with it. You're going to, you know, I mean, it's, it's not low carb, but it's good uh, food. I'm just saying if you're listening out there. Um, so it's, it's grain, it's food, it's food. 
And what's wine? Wine is drink. It's happy drink. The more you drink, the happier you get. Right? You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of that um, missions trip that I took with Charlie and Mary Jean and uh, uh, the, uh, let's see, uh, 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 David Whiting brought Benjamin Whiting. There was me and Josh. Uh, there was a whole slew of us that went. Uh, it was a big, big trip. And on the way back, uh, Marsha was on that trip. Uh, on the way back, uh, we got on the plane, and the plane was half full of college kids who had just gotten off of what they called the booze cruise. And you can imagine what that flight was like. I mean, there were guys sitting there with pornography open. They were being confronted by the flight attendants about it. They were, it was, they were obnoxious, and, and they, they were experiencing what the world might call joy. It wasn't joy. What does David mean when he says, lift up your countenance or lift up your face upon us, O Lord? I mean, when, you're, when you hear David say, you have put more joy in my heart, that's a lot of joy, more joy than anybody who, who fills their belly with food and drinks themselves into oblivion. I mean, the fullest extent of what joy you can get from food and drink. And David is saying, mine's better than that. The joy I have is infinitely better than that. Where's that joy come from? And I would, for the sake of time, simply answer that the context says this, implies this. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. That's the source of joy. When the Lord lifts up his face upon you. Now what does he mean when he says lift up your light, the light of your face upon us? Just a few scriptures from the Old Testament. Psalm 80 verse 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. (laughs) When God lifts his countenance and shines the light of his presence on a person, they're saved. That's one thing. Psalm 119, 135. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. When God makes his face shine upon you, you understand the Bible. You delight in God's word. You have a heart that wants to obey God's word because you get it. You understand it. In Psalm 44, verse 3, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, the light of your face, For you delighted in them. When God lifted up the light of his face on Israel, they won their battles. These are objective things that come from the light of his presence, the light of his face. In the Old Testament, when the priests were called upon to offer a blessing upon the people, you remember what they would say? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord, what? Make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you 
peace. What happens when the Lord lifts up his light? The light of his face upon us, all kinds of objective realities happen. And some that are subjective, I know that, because here's what David says, and I've read it twice already, you put more joy in my heart than they have when they're done their booze cruise. When they've just feasted or gone to the temple of Diana and did what they do there. My joy is greater. God's people's joy is greater. Jesus said, I have come to give you life and give it more abundantly. I pray that my joy will be in you and your joy would be made what? Full. Full. You know why people stuff themselves with food and drink themselves silly with wine or beer or scotch? You want to know why college kids go to Mexico and do those things on spring break? It's because they're looking for joy. But joy can't be found in these things. Not real joy, true joy, lasting joy, eternal joy. That can only be found in relationship with God. And that enabled David to do the final thing in our study. He was able to, last thing, trade his anxiety for peace. Look at verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, alone O Lord, make me, make me dwell in safety. There's no time in a person's life when he's more vulnerable to trouble than when he's asleep. Can't protect yourself. Sleep is to, be utterly, to sleep is to be utterly dependent. You have no control over your environment. You have no control over the people around you. You're vulnerable. When you're out hiking in the deep wilderness, as four of my kids are right now up on the border of Canada, deep, deep in the backwoods, you're most vulnerable to the intrusion of wild animals when they're asleep. David knew this. He knew that his enemies were looking for him when his most vulnerable time was at night. But he didn't stay, he didn't stay awake and fret all night. No, he says, because I know the face of the Lord is shining upon me. And here's the quote. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Make me dwell. Just reminds me of Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And I always think of eating because it's green pastures. I never thought of it as sleeping. And maybe that's not what he had in mind, but he had to sleep sometime. This has been the verse on the lips of many saints. And by the way, if you could turn just briefly, and I'm just bad at time. Maybe I'm way over time. Uh, Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Here's what we read. Uh, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And, you know, unless, unless the Lord is protecting you, 
If he is protecting you, you can lay down and sleep. Watch this, verse 2. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved, what? Sleep. Isn't that great? Some of you, every night, you're like before you go to bed, you never take time to be with God. And you're probably a Christian, maybe not, but at least you think you are. And, and you never take time, not in the morning and not at night. This is the, the impulse of David, of David is when I lay down on bed, I'm going to think about these things. I'm going to think about the Lord. I'm going to ask, let's evaluate my day. Let's evaluate my life right now. How's my heart? Did I let my heart out to something, some idol? And Lord, if, if I have, Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Take away my anxiety. Take away my guilt. But so many of us, I think, who are driven people, hardworking Americans, you really have a trouble sleeping because you just, you're engaging in anxious toil. And that's fine during the day, but at night, you need to give it up. You need to trust the Lord with all of those things. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. There is an irony here. The next verse says, Behold, children are a heritage of the Lord. There goes sleep. I <laughs> 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 thought you young families would appreciate that. This has been the verse on the lips of many saints in their dying breath. Martin Luther wanted his friends who were around him at his deathbed to sing this psalm. Let me read it to you again. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. He knew he was dying. I am going to fall asleep completely safe in the arms of God. In fact, he asked that a requiem be composed on the last words of this psalm. I'm not sure what a requiem is, but our brother who does compositions could tell us later. In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, our Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the kind of confidence we need. We need no one to protect us but God. How should we respond when people cause us pain? Call upon the Lord in your distress. In your heart, invite your enemies to repent and believe. Delight in the joy of the Lord and trade your anxiety for peace. And I would just, one more thing here. If you're here today, and I always assume that there are people who don't really know the Lord, who were listening in, maybe here this morning. Here's my challenge for you. Number one, know that only God can reconcile you to himself. Your good works amount to nothing in his eyes. It is the Lord who sets the godly apart for himself. The question is not, will you accept him? The question is, will he accept you? Secondly, tremble before him because of your sin. Acknowledge it for what it is. You have sinned against a holy God. Third, Lay on your bed tonight and engage in some humble, honest appraisal of your life and your heart, your relationship with God. You, you know you're a sinner. You already know you're a sinner. 
If, if you don't know that, you are just lying to yourself. That's the only reason you don't know that. You know you're a sinner. You know there is nothing you can do to change that. Fourth, offer a right sacrifice. Or, better, accept the sacrifice that God has already made for you in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the sacrifice that is the fulfillment of all of the shadows of 10 million sheep and goats and oxen who were slaughtered on the altar for sin. The blood of bulls and goats could never fully accomplish our salvation. But God once sent his son to be the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world and come to him with the right sacrifice. Don't come to him with your righteousness. Repent of your righteousness and come to God with nothing. Come to him and say, God, I realize you're holy and I'm sinful and I have nothing to offer you but my sin. Will you forgive me? Will you accept me? Will you promise to never remember my sin against me? Put your trust in the Lord. Put your trust completely in the Lord. And when you do, the Lord will lift up his face upon you. And you will know the joy of the Lord and his peace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we love this book. <laughs> we are so grateful for the truths in it and how you minister to us by it. And I've heard so many stories this week of people marveling at Psalm 3 and its truth and its help. Oh, Father, would you minister to us through Psalm 4 today, tonight, this week? And as we read your word daily, may your spirit, may our spirits be docile to your spirit as he exposes things that need to change. Give us the grace, Father, to pursue that change for your glory and for our own joy, we pray. Amen.